God's word for us tonight is from 2 Samuel in the Church Bible. It's on page 315. We're looking at 2 Samuel chapter 12, beginning at verse 1. 2 Samuel 12, beginning at verse 1. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb that he had bought. He raised it, and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food, drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this deserves to die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says. I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house to you, and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. Now, therefore, the sword shall never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household I am going to bring calamity upon you. Before your very eyes I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will lie with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret. But I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. Nathan replied, The Lord has taken away your sin. You are not going to die. But because by doing this you have made the enemies of the Lord show utter contempt, the son born to you will die. After Nathan had gone home, the Lord struck the child that Uriah's wife had borne to David, and he became ill. David pleaded with God for the child. He fasted and went into his house and spent the nights lying on the ground. The elders of his household stood beside him to get him up from the ground, but he refused, and he would not eat any food with them. On the seventh day, the child died. David's servants were afraid to tell him that the child was dead, for they thought, While the child was still living, we spoke to David, but he would not listen to us. How can we tell him the child is dead? He may do something desperate. David noticed that his servants were whispering among themselves, and he realized that the child was dead. Is the child dead? he asked. Yes, they replied, he is dead. Then David got up from the ground. After he had washed, put on lotions, and changed his clothes, he went into the house of the Lord and worshipped. Then he went to his own house, and at his request they served him food, and he ate. His servants asked him, Why are you acting in this way? While the child was alive, you fasted and wept. But now that the child is dead, you get up and eat. 
He answered, While the child was still alive, I fasted and wept. I thought, Who knows? The Lord may be gracious to me and let the child live. But now that he is dead, why should I fast? Can I bring him back again? I will go to him, but he will not return to me. Then David comforted his wife Bathsheba, and he went to her and lay with her. She gave birth to a son, and they named him Solomon. The Lord loved him, and because the Lord loved him, he sent word through Nathan the prophet to name him Jedidiah. And I'll just read this psalm. It comes out of David's sorrow and his repentance as does Psalm 51, these what's called penitential psalms. Blessed is he whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit is no deceit. When I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long, Day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord. And you forgave the guilt of my sin. Therefore let everyone who is godly pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. You are my hiding place. You will protect me from trouble and surround me with songs of deliverance. I will instruct you and teach you in the way you should go. I will counsel you and watch over you. Do not be like the horse or mule which has no understanding but must be controlled by bit and bridle or they will not come to you. Many are the woes of the wicked but the Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man who trusts in him. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad you're righteous. Sing all who are upright in heart. So read Psalm 32. There is no greater burden, no heavier heartache than the burden of guilt. Stay with me when you think about David and the reading we've had and think of how people down through the centuries have been helped and sustained in their worship, in their joy and their sorrow and their life and death by many of the great Psalms. David is a role model for godliness and stands head and shoulders above people as a man after God's own heart. And he is blessed with unsurpassed spiritual insight 
Yet that same person committed callous acts, premeditated murder. He had sex with the, with the wife of his loyal friend Bathsheba and his friend Uriah, whom he orchestrated deliberately to have him lawfully killed. Sometimes you hear people say, well, I never thought he or she is capable of that. You've heard the accounts of child abuse this past week. People are shocked and horrified. Yet the stark reminder, and particularly from the Bible, is that the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can predict? Who can control? Who can harness the heart apart from God himself? That's the setting. Now this is the point. Uriah is out of the way. Bathsheba, who's bearing his child. Life goes on. He breathes a sigh of relief. And they return to normal. It's okay. Except for one problem. Well, two, actually. The obvious one. Under the surface is this gnawing guilt. And the second problem is a man, a preacher, a prophet by the name of Nathan. And we, he gives that teasing parable, doesn't he? And he draws David emotionally into it and says, anybody who's capable of such cruelty... Such premeditated evil deserves to die. Quite so. And you're the man. It's an amazing account, isn't it? That it should be somebody, the author of Psalm 23, that he's capable of doing that. It's quite frightening. But that's the history of mankind. That whilst we are capable of doing very beautiful, quite wonderful things, we are also capable of doing horrendous evil. Do you know the author Edgar Allan Poe and his searching story called The Tell-Tale Heart? Listen to this. The main character has committed murder, like David. Unable to escape the haunting guilt of his deed, he begins to hear the heartbeat of the victim that he has buried in his basement. A cold sweat covers him as the beat, beat, beat goes on relentlessly. Ultimately, it becomes clear that the pounding which drove the man mad was not in the grave in the basement, but the pounding of the heart in his breast. 
So it is. So it is. With an unforgiven conscience. That's why Psalm 32 is written. So let's stay with this a little longer and then we'll have an outline of the psalm itself with all of that background. What we are dealing with then is the grind of a conscience that lacks forgiveness. So Psalm 51, which Helen read from, which we sang from, creating me a clean heart, should be tied in with Psalm 32. There they belong together. Both were written by David as a result of his adultery with Bathsheba. But let's try to see the differences. Psalm 51 was probably written during the anguish of his guilt. And Psalm 32 was probably written after the anguish, after his forgiveness had been secured and now he finds peace of mind and he is restored to a relationship with God. There it is. Now it would be very profitable to look at all of these things but we'll stay therefore with Psalm 32 for the purpose of, um, of that introduction. The outline runs something like this. But the, the sermon tonight is, is a bit different to the usual. It is deliberately, purposefully subjective. And that sentence there is that Psalm 32 lets us enter in not to the thinking of David, but into the feeling of David. So the sermon isn't, how do you think, but how do you feel? What is your gut response to somebody who can do this? So, the first is this in um, verses 1 and 2. It's an expression of present joy. And then secondly, it's a reflection on the past. In his feelings and in his mind he revisits his past misdemeanors verses 3 to 5 and then there's the provision of the future and his future needs and finally what is if it isn't obvious already if it hasn't already been given the application for all believers at the close of the psalm well there you are it's quite simple isn't it easy to follow okay expression of present joy he is rejoicing over the removal of his sins. Sin is like the law of gravity. It always pulls you down. It has a measure of pleasure. That's why Wesley's great hymn, Take away among the, the Lord's people the love of sinning. Would that that would happen. But what it does to us, it pulls us down. Always it's a downward pull. Always. Always. Even though, like David, we may think, I've got away with it. I've pulled a fast one and I'm all right. 
The expression of present joy, therefore, is all the more powerful. Look at these three terms that are used, just very quickly. Um, the first, uh, the terms for wrongdoing. There they come, they tumble out in front of you here, verses 1 and 2. First of all, transgression. Now, you can sometimes do something inadvertently, accidentally, unintentionally. This transgression is flagrant, banned or wrongdoing. I am doing this. I know it's wrong, but I'm doing it. I'm doing it. It's never accidental. Transgression means a willful act of disobedience. I love her and I want him. Or I love me and I'll have her. Or why shouldn't I? Everybody else is. That sort of thing. And secondly... The second word here of wrongdoing, it's, there it is, we've used it, it'll probably come up quite a bit in the sermon, sin. Simply means to, to miss the mark and to go the wrong way, to do wrong. And thirdly, this is a subtle one, this one. There's a little nuance about all this wrongdoing and, and there you have it, deceit. This is the interesting thing, however, about deceit. It, yes, you can deceive people. We know we can't deceive God, but we'd like to think that we can. But there's a double whammy here. You see, to deceive others, there's a backlash that then we deceive ourselves. That's why 1 John 1, 1.9, if we confess our sin, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sin and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If, however, we should say in our folly that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. Ourselves. For sure, not other people. Deceit is like, it's a slippery thing, isn't it? And, of course, if it goes on and on, we just live in a form of self-deception. That's the downward spiral, even from these brief verses. But here's the interesting thing. Outwardly, come back to David, he's fine. Life's gone on. Things are okay now. He's moved on. People say that to you, don't you? Move on. You've got to move on. Can you imagine David saying it to others? Look, you've got to move on. But how can you move on with, with, with the weight of guilt pressing you down? So outwardly, he's fine. Inwardly, he's messed up, screwed up, complicated, falling apart. And he says to people when they ask him, how are you? I'm fine. Until Nathan comes and he spoils the party, doesn't he? So I challenge you to, to, to stop To think, to confess, and respond to the Lord as he speaks to us. So the expression of present joy, blessed is he, now then, with this behind. What an amazing thing. Whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man 
whose sin the Lord does not count against him, and in whose spirit, in your attitude, there is no deceit. No deceit. Let's look secondly, uh, a reflection on past sins. Look at verses 3 to 5. You see that period? I kept silent. Didn't tell anybody. Just, just got on with life. It's okay. But, but what can you do? Living with the relentless burden of guilt that's getting heavier and deeper. I think, in a sense, in varying degrees, I'm not saying you or I have committed murder or adultery, whatever. But in varying degrees, every believer knows about this. Every believer knows about the guilt of sin. We may not have done what David did, but we know about this. And we have to come face to face with the monster of guilt. The monster of guilt. I was talking to somebody just recently who's trying to recover from secondary cancer. And he says, this stuff they're pumping into me is to kill the monster inside me. Cancer. It's a terrible treatment. But you could add infinity to that to think about what it cost to deal with the monster of guilt in our lives so that we are free. We are saved. And the reflection on these past sins is a very powerful thing, isn't it? Unconfessed sin takes its toll, a heavy toll. Uh, we haven't got many cross-references, but look in Proverbs, uh, Proverbs 28, just to see one, one reference, and I think we've only got one more. And this also, is, I think, is in Proverbs. But here we are. This is what we're saying. Unconfessed sin takes its toll, a heavy toll. Proverbs 28, 13. Well, actually, we could look at verse 9. David would fit into this, wouldn't he? If anyone turns a deaf ear to the law, even his prayers are detestable. An incredible parable. Proverbs. If anyone turns a deaf ear to God's voice, his prayers are detestable. But verse 13, he who conceals his sin does not prosper. There's no blessing. But whoever confesses and renounces them finds mercy, finds grace. That's a lovely thing, isn't it? Let's stay with this then for a moment. Let's suppose somebody is, is not prepared to face that. This unconfessed sin in its extreme form, keeping silent then, if you like, uh, as you have it from verse 5, when I was like this, when it's all locked up inside, okay, it can, not always, it can cause a, a, a form of psychosomatic illness. It can induce physical pain which can result from mental, emotional and spiritual conflicts. Get rid of them. Don't carry them. Don't hide them. Don't silence them. 
That's the point of this psalm with the background from 2 Samuel. In other words, what you have in, then in verse 5 is a wonderful breakthrough, marvelous breakthrough. Then I acknowledged my sin to you and did not cover up my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord and you forgive. It's an interesting phrase, isn't it? You forgive my sin? No, you forgive the guilt of my sin. Almost like the, the, the consequence of unconfessed sin. The growing guilt within me. Do you see it? What do you think in terms of people's illnesses, emotionally and psychologically, to have a healthy sense of God's total forgiveness and to be at rest? The, the terms that are used here, his body wasted away. He is groaning all day. You know, sometimes some people are depressed. They go, going, oh, just like that all day. And some people have to live with them like that. And, and, and he, he entered endured day and night as if it was just the same. No quality of sleep. And his vitality had drained and sapped as in the searing heat of the day. Fever heat like a hot summer. Do you see the progression? I acknowledged my sin. My iniquity I didn't hide. I will confess my transgressions. You forgive the guilt of my sin. There's the journey. You have to make the journey. And where better to make that journey tonight than as we come round the Lord's table. God forgave completely because David confessed completely. And if you and I are harboring some sin, then how can it be forgiven? If, in other words, you are keeping a hidden secret within the recesses of your life, how can you expect to enjoy peace and grace and blessing, freedom from guilt as a believer? Few grinds are more galling than the grind of an unforgiven conscience. It is awful. Don't go there. Don't stay there. Leave there. Because few joys are more relieving than having our sins forgiven. The converse. Thirdly, and very quickly, a provision for future needs. Look at verses 6 to 8. Therefore, in the light of this, this wonderful transformation, let everyone who is godly pray to you. Why are we hanging around? Why do we drag our feet? Why are we waiting? Let everyone pray to you while you may be found. Surely when the mighty waters rise, they will not reach him. Think of this, if you like, and you've seen your television as the spiritual tsunami. You don't say, okay, you've got, you've got warning. You know now, you go to high ground. There are people who have perished in Samoa because no warning. No warning. But here's the provision. 
God in it. He didn't have to, but he did. And he speaks to us. He speaks to us graciously. And isn't it so easy to be like David, to get angry about other people's sins and to have a blind spot about our own? The man who did this deserves to die. That is a shocking thing. You are the man. It's an amazing thing, isn't it? It is. What a wonderful thing then to have provision for our future needs. And the contrast couldn't be greater. Previously, he was refusing and, and rebelling and pretending. Now he is receptive and he's open and he's willing to confess his, his sin before the Lord and indeed, if necessary, before other people. And that's why we were singing. What came out of it was, let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins. Blot out all my iniquity. Create in me a clean heart, O God. And look at this. Restore to me the joy of your salvation. How come he lost it? Well, he lost it by pretending instead of repenting. So let's read Psalm 51. And finally then, if, if it isn't obvious already, what's the application for us? Well, just two, two headings at least. The first is this. Wherever you are at tonight, wherever you're at, not just in terms of actions, but attitudes, which are just as powerful, I say two things or three things to you. First, don't be stubborn. Don't be like that. Or indeed, there you, you have it, look. Don't be like the horse or, or the, the caricature of a stubborn mule. Digs his heels in. Has no understanding. Don't be like that. Don't dig your heels in when it comes to sin. Come to God. Ask his forgiveness in terms of attitudes and actions. And come to God believing that he knows about you already. But he wants to hear from you. Don't, if you like, put it like this. Don't let sin build up like what we used to call a log jam that acts as a dam. Let, let him Burst these things out so that the grace of God can flow again. Don't be stubborn. Secondly, and more positively, from verse 10, be decisive. Be resolute. Time is short. Be decisive. So there it is. Many are the woes of the wicked. Look at the world in which we live. How can you answer that? Well, you can't. But you can, you can answer this. The Lord's unfailing love surrounds the man and woman who trusts in him. Be decisive. Trust him. And as you trust, discover afresh his unfailing love. His unfailing love. It really, literally means his covenant love. His covenant love. The Lord's covenant love surrounds, hedges around the man who trusts in him. And lastly, cultivate gratitude. Cultivate gratitude. You come full circle. 
without that terrible backdrop. Terrible backdrop. Rejoice in the Lord and be glad, you righteous. If you can make that journey, wherever you come from, sing, all you who are upright in heart. Cultivate gratitude. And even if and when a preacher like Nathan comes and says, you are the man, don't gossip about it. Don't criticize him. See that he is God's messenger of hope and grace and blessing to you. Thank God for him. Pray for him that, that he has the courage to speak like that. Because David could have taken Nathan out as he did to Uriah. Didn't have to repent, but he did. And thanks be to God because of that Psalm 32 and Psalm 51 are written. And so now it's our day, not David's day. Cultivate gratitude. Or even, let's reverse it, even if the preacher himself should be guilty of such a terrible thing as sometimes happens. Would we be inclined to pray for him? Or if he didn't quite agree with our theological point of view, give him a hard time. Cultivate gratitude. If David can do these terrible things, I can. And so can you. Here is this wonderful expression of present joy with that awful backdrop and a reflection on past sins and the breakthrough breaking the logjam comes then I acknowledge my sins to you I will confess to you and you forgave the guilt of my sin it's a powerful sentence Jesus didn't forgive my sin but its consequences physically, emotionally, spiritually in my life where I'm at so please, please, don't be stubborn. Be decisive. And as life is so short, cultivate gratitude. Gratitude, I say, it is grace in action. Grace in our lives. 